Just in a moment, Phil's going to come and speak to us from a passage this morning from Jeremiah, at chapter 7. Uh, if you uh, have a red church Bible, uh, that's on page 764, uh, Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, starting at verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then... I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave to your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name. And see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your forefathers. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your brothers, the people of Ephraim. So do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with them, for I will not listen to you. Do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes of bread for the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods and provoke me to anger. But I am the one they are provoking, declares the Lord. Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
But I gave them this command. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backwards and not forward. From the time your forefathers left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. But they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their forefathers. When you tell them all this, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. Therefore say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. Cut off your hair and throw it away. Take up a lament on the barren heights for the Lord has rejected and abandoned this generation that is under his wrath. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So beware. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no room. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and there will be no one to frighten them away. I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem for the land will become desolate. Let's pray. Father in heaven, speak to us now, we pray. May our hearts be drawn closer to you as we are challenged and moulded by your word. Father, by your spirit, work in our hearts now. Strengthen Phil in his task in sharing your word with us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Dan, for reading that passage so well. Um, I think it would be really important for us all here this morning to have that passage open in front of us so we can follow it as we read it through, uh, as, we, as we work through it together now. So as a church, we are um, we're reading through the book of Jeremiah, um, um, the last couple of sermons that we've had on Sunday mornings. We've looked at Jeremiah being called to do this work, to preach to Israel. Um, The last four chapters from chapter 2 to chapter 5, actually, Jeremiah has preached one long sermon about um, uh, how God's anger and grief was being expressed at the people's sin. So they'd been wandering away from God. And now we find him at the temple and he preaches this sermon to, um, to the people wandering past him, going up to the temple. When I was in Nepal about five years ago, I had to be driven by car to a town that was a couple of hours' drive away. 
I found out later that the road we used featured on a TV program entitled The World's Most Dangerous Roads. As you can imagine, the experience of that drive was terrifying for me, and there were two reasons for that. Firstly, it's called The World's Most Dangerous Road not because it's actually physically dangerous, but because nobody in Nepal knows how to drive safely. It seems that the answer to avoiding a crash was to step on the accelerator rather than the brake. Blind corners seemed to be the place where overtaking was allowed rather than discouraged, and seat belts were generally considered an uncomfortable distraction to the whole driving experience. The second reason why I was scared was because at those moments when I was screaming in panic, when my foot was firmly to the floor on an imaginary brake, begging for mercy and help, when even the driver was preparing to meet our maker, he would take his, his hand off the horn, kiss his fingers, and stroke a rabbit's foot that was dangling from the mirror. That was his answer to the most difficult problems. And then... Wonderfully, he'd, after the, after the moment had passed, he'd turn around to me in a massive smile and kind of point to the rabbit's foot and say, it worked. It's an incident that illustrates what it means to trust in something that cannot save. And in our passage this morning, we find Jeremiah standing at the gates to the temple and delivering a sermon about the people who had come to believe in the power of things that cannot save. So the year is is, is 609 BC. A good king, King Josiah, had just died and his son, King Jehoiakim, had become king. Now, whereas Josiah wanted people to turn back to God, Jehoiakim uh, didn't. He wanted people to worship false idols. And yet, at the centerpiece of Jerusalem, where they lived, was the temple. And the problem with their cultural, um, the, the problem with their culture was that they were both happy to worship false idols and go to the temple to pray and worship God. And that t- temple had become something they saw as a kind of rabbit's foot, a, a token that as long as the temple stayed there, as long as the temple existed, they would be safe. It had become a good luck charm. But in our passage, God challenges their false confidences, not just in the temple, but in lies and deceptive words. And he calls them to see what they're doing and to trust in him. And that brings us to our first point, which is simply this, trust God's words and not lies. Trust God's words and not lies. Look at verse three to seven with me. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. On the face of it, the people still went to the temple, but what they were hearing and believing were deceptive words, lies. And that's pictured by the fact that Jeremiah was standing on the outside of the temple and preaching the truth while all the people were wandering past him, most of them muttering about what a nutter was doing there yet again and going into the temple and listening to false prophets 
who are preaching lies and false confidences to them. And it was typical of Jeremiah's time. If you read the book of Jeremiah in one hit, you'll find that over 40 years that he stood there or stood preaching in the land of, of, of Judah, he fights to be heard over the noise of these false prophets. And he fought because his message was unpopular. And the people didn't want to listen to him. They would much rather listen to the lies of those false prophets who spoke soothing words, who gave false promises that everything would be okay. So on the outside of the temple, at the gates, Jeremiah preached truth, whilst on the inside of the temple, the people trusted in the lies that were preached to them. Words that were a mantra. Those words, this is the temple of the Lord, seemed to be more just like a magic formula that kept them safe. Say it three times and you'll be okay. And the people had begun to trust in false words, in lies, more than they trusted in God. But the problem is that the whole reason for a temple was to reflect the fact that a personal relationship with God could be had. That's what the building was there for. It was a place where God could meet with his people and the people could meet with one another and worship God together. That's the whole point of the temple. That's why God had established the temple in the first place. But sadly, that personal relationship with God had broken down because of lies and superstitions. And that's why in verse 5, God tells them he wanted changed lives that reflected the fact that they were in relationship with God. Look at verse 5 with me. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land that I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. For all their words and for all their religiosity, God's people had stopped dealing with each other justly. They were diddling each other. They were exploiting each other. They were not being generous towards other. They were taking advantage of each other. They'd also stopped caring for the vulnerable, the widow and the orphan. You see, a community that loves the Lord loves one another, and that love naturally overflows to the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, and even those outside the community, the foreigner. And they worshipped other gods in ways that harmed them. It led them to sacrifice their children, to cut their own bodies in devotion, and they violated themselves sexually as part of their ritual worship of other gods. So God saw the pain and the misery this false confidence caused and he wanted it to stop. And the only way it was going to stop is if the people turned their hearts to him. If they listened to his word and lived out his word. Well, that would bring an end to all the injustices amongst God's people. And it's a beautiful offer, isn't it? In stark contrast to what they were doing. God is saying, if you listen to my words, then all the pain that you are causing one another will end. It will. 
Because my word, the point of a relationship with God, the point of listening to my word, the point of loving God and and fellowshipping with him and giving our lives to him is so that our lives will be shaped by him and that will naturally affect the way we treat and love and care for one another. And that's the offer on the table. Do you notice in in those verses uh, that twice in those first opening verses, God says, I want you to live in this, in this place. I want you to, to live, to vibrantly reflect my love for you and your love for me and allow that love for, for each other to overflow to the community and to those even outside the community. That's God's heart and it's wonderful. It's wonderful, but those lies and the deceptive words were just completely ignoring that life and leading to harming other people, death. How does that relate to us today? Well, this chapter was written to God's people who were blind to deceptions and superstitions that they had come to accept as true. When we look at the New Testament, we find a similar warning in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4. It says this, there will come a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. So what you find is in in Jeremiah's time, about 609 BC, people were listening to lies and deception and superstitions. In, in, In Paul's time, in the early church, in the first century, people were turning away from the truth and listening to lies and and deceptions. And, And the same thing can happen in our time. There will all be, always be false teachers who will tell us what we want to hear about God and not the truth about God. That's the whole basis of the prosperity gospel. It's the reason why churches are, are allowing same-sex marriages. What they're preaching is what we want to hear. What they're preaching is what the world wants to hear. But Paul says... And tells us what the antidote to that is. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, he simply says, preach the word. The word being the good news about Jesus. Truthfully and faithfully. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So that the command here is for us to preach the word to ourselves. To preach the word to one another, to find out about sound doctrine, to read the Bible, to learn the Bible, to accept actually that what it says is often what we don't want to hear. Sound doctrine will tell us that God is sovereign, not, not me, not you. Sound doctrine will tell us that he chooses us for salvation. We can read that in John 3 and Ephesians chapter 1. Sound doctrine will tell us that same-sex marriage is never endorsed in the Bible, nor is gay sex. So when you look at Genesis 2.24, you see actually God loves the union of husband and wife. When you look at the Song of Solomon, it's all about sex between a husband and wife. And it all points to Revelation 21 and 22, which is about the union of Christ and the church. That is a beautiful picture. That is why God wants sex to be between a man and a woman, a husband and wife. 
and not outside that context because that context reflects the beautiful reality that Christ will be united with the church. That's sound doctrine. Sound doctrine will tell you that special words like the creed or Hail Mary, Mother of God, cannot make me better before God. Because the Bible says in Ephesians 2 verse 8, it is by grace and grace alone that we're saved. And there are two reactions to the truth. One is to reject it because we don't like a God who says those things. And we prefer to listen to lies. And the other reaction leads to life. That's the invitation of this chapter, isn't it? Oh, know God and live. Know God and and understand the full blessings of all that he brings. If you change your ways, says God, then you will live. That's the beautiful invitation of this passage. And Jeremiah's challenge to the people then is the same to to us now. Will we live? Will we listen to God's word and live? That brings us on to the second point, which is trust God's word and not the temple. So Jeremiah goes on to challenge their belief that God was a tame God and bound by his own promises about the temple. So look at verse 9 and 10 with me. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, oh, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. So their false confidences gave rise to hypocrisy. They were murderers, adulterers, liars, thieves, and idolaters. And yet their attitude to the temple was not repentance. They weren't going to the temple and saying, Oh Lord God, look what I have done. Please forgive me. They were going and saying, Well, I'm safe here. I can carry on what I want to do. And they believed that God would not let that temple fall. It was too precious for him to be allowed, to allowed, too precious for him to allow it to be destroyed. So they believed he was bound by his own word, his own commitment to that temple, um, to do anything about their hypocrisy. And God shows them otherwise. In verses 12 to 14, he says that physical buildings don't matter to him. You see, previous to the temple, God's presence with his people resided in a tent that was in a town called Shiloh. And he says, well, look what happened to Shiloh. God destroyed it because of their wickedness. It doesn't exist anymore. God is not limited to physical presences. That's what he says to them. And we might think that that kind of superstitious trust in places doesn't exist today. We don't have a temple. We're not, we're, and, and by the way, we're, we're sophisticated people, aren't we? We can spot that kind of hypocrisy a mile off, I'm sure. But sadly, it's not the case today. Today, we don't have a temple, that's true. But we do have a church, a body of believers. And the New Testament teaches us that we're to consider the temple today as the church of God. So 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 tells us, Don't you know that you yourselves, you're the church, are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in your midst. There's the temple. Which means we can apply this warning to how people put false confidence in church today. 
So I, I, I knew a youth leader who once started working for a church, and after a term, he decided to introduce a Bible talk into the Friday night youth group meetings. The group had up to that point been about having fun, doing wild stuff, and keeping the young people entertained and off the streets. So the youth leader suggested that the group should have a 12-minute talk in the middle and follow that up by a 10-minute discussion in groups. And that's when trouble began. A petition was drawn up by the young people. It's too much Bible, they said. And it was formally handed to the elders of that church. The parents started complaining that their young people didn't like coming to youth group because of the Bible bit. It was too heavy for Friday night. The young people started boycotting the group and numbers fell from around 75 to around 12. And it came to a head one night when the youth leader was cornered by a group of parents, one of whom pinned him against the wall with his arm and screamed in his face, if my boys stop coming to church because you've ruined youth group, I will hold you directly responsible. Can you see the superstition of it? Because here was the point. The parents trusted youth group more than the Bible. They believed youth group had more power to keep their kids on the straight and narrow than God's word. So it is possible for us to trust church more than God's word. Applying that wider, often we can fall into believing that our church attendance or our role in church gives us a standing before God and we begin to trust in that to keep us safe rather than God himself. So how do we keep our trust in God? How do we avoid these pitfalls of avoiding, uh, the pitfalls of listening to lies and trusting in church? Well, the answer is to stay humble, to sit under God's word and really, really listen to it. And that's our final point. Listen to God's word and fear his judgment. The final verses of this passage outline how degenerate God's people had become. In verse 30, we're told, The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They've set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They worshipped other gods and they deliberately made offerings to them with the intention to arouse God's anger. And verse 31 continues, They've built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. It's pointed, isn't it? That we have to read these verses on a day when we've given thanks for baby Esther. And we've asked each of us to care spiritually for her. We stood up and declared that, didn't we? But this is how evil they'd become. They were doing the total opposite to that. They were sacrificing their children to Molech in the hope they'd have a better life. And we mustn't think that Judah must have looked like where the baddies lived in a movie. No, actually, if you walk through the land of Judah, well, verse 34 tells us it was awash with the sound of joy and gladness. People were marrying. In other words, on the surface of it, Judah carried on. On the surface, it looked normal. But they'd long ago stopped listening to God 
Let me read verses 27 to 28. When you tell them all this, they won't listen to you. When you call to them, they won't answer. Therefore say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It's vanished from their lips. And that's their problem. And because of it, the judgment was coming. In verse 32 and and the first bit of chapter 8, God warns them, the valley where they were sacrificing their children would not be filled with the bones of the sacrificed children, but with the bones of those doing the sacrificing. And there'd be so many bones that they would be just filling the valley and lying around unburied. And actually, history tells us that happened. History tells us that the Valley of Topheth was, uh, became known as the Valley of Slaughter. And in turn, by Jesus' time, it became known as Gehenna, where all the rubbish and filth was burnt. And in our day, it's known as hell. They're sobering words, aren't they? God warns his people that hell is coming because they rejected his word. And they are the words that God's people today need to read because we rarely consider the consequences of not listening to God's word in in this true and, and real way. And verse 32 begins with that word, beware, beware. And for all of us who call ourselves Christians, we must beware. Uh, beware in case that our, our faith is found to be false on the last day. Beware that our confidence is falsely in who we are or, or our good works. To beware in case we've lived that Jesus is a good saviour. But I don't want to submit to his lordship. I don't want him to be king. I like to live life under my rules. And in my experience, the biggest warning sign of that kind of hard-heartedness is if we respond badly to truth about God or God's truth about us. Why is that? It's because to believe in a God who never offends is to believe in a God of our own making. I'll say that again. To believe in a God who never offends is to believe in a God of our own making. Because when God offends us by revealing something about him or something about us that is true, we can either reject it and say, that's that's not true. I don't like that, so I just don't believe it. Or we can bow our knee in, in praise and say, Lord God, you have revealed something about yourself or, and something about me, which, wow, I don't like, but it's so true and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. So we have to ask, therefore, is Jesus our Lord? Or is he convenient? Do we tell him daily that we need him and his grace? Or do we secretly resent him for being someone that we don't fundamentally like? Well, if we're challenged, then actually... The joy is we can live. That's the beautiful thing, isn't it? God's offer is always on the table. You can live. And we live by saying to Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, 
son of the living God, forgive me for the way and my, forgive me for my attitude towards you. Forgive me for not liking the things about you that offend me. Forgive me for wanting you to do life my way rather than me living your way. And may I submit to your lordship. And if you're not a Christian today, the truth is Gehenna or hell is a real place. It's eternal punishment for not listening to God. It's eternal punishment for wanting God to come under our rules. So please understand, because God is God, he's not going to bow to our will. And we just have to accept that he is the ruler. That's just how it is. But let me say, we need God's word today because it's real about God. God's word tells us the truth about his love and his forgiveness, as well as his anger and his judgment. And it's the truth as it is. And that's refreshing in a world that is run by fake news and by spin. And if you're challenged by this truth this morning, if today's passage about judgment and wrath is uncomfortable, then the truth is you're beginning to understand him. That's a joy. In The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, when Lucy, Peter and Susan are told that they're going to meet Aslan, they ask Mr. Beaver, he's a talking beaver, that happens in um, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. They ask Mr. Beaver, who is this Aslan? What's he like? And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, says Susan. I thought he was a man. Is, is, he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Being uncomfortable about God's wrath and judgment means that you understand his power in your world. It's a bit like realizing the king you're about to to, to meet will be a lion, uh, wild and larger than life and free. But God is good. God is good. And his invitation is simply this. Will you meet him this morning? Will you know him this morning? Will you accept him this morning for who he is? Not what you want him to be. That is what being a Christian is about. That is God's invitation this morning. Will we change our ways? Will we stop listening to lies? Will we stop trusting in trinkets? And will we live like God wants us to live? They're hard and direct warnings, I know. But they're in God's word because God wants us to hear them. And I pray that these words will help us to see the truth about God. The truth about ourselves. And I pray that our lives will be deeply changed as we see that truth for his glory. We're going to sing a song um, which invites the church of God to arise and put our armor on and to hear the call of Christ our captain. That's a beautiful, beautiful phrase. It is basically simply saying this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear this this morning. 
Will you stand? Will you listen to the gospel truth that is your armor? And will you hear the voice of Christ, our Lord, our our, our captain, our ruler, our instructor, the one whom we obey? And that's the call this morning, isn't it? We're called this morning by this passage to change our ways, to trust in the gospel, and to listen to Jesus. Let's stand and sing this great song.